Okay, guys. Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Second Corinthians uh, chapter two, I believe it is. Uh, wait, wait. Let's see here. Yeah, Second Corinthians chapter was in First Corinthians. No, I wasn't. Yeah, Second Corinthians chapter two. Uh, again, we're talking about practical theology, and we've been looking at different obstacles um, to practical theology, which is basically to say um, that there are obstacles to our um, uh, to our sanctification that we need to be aware of. And the last one we're looking at today is Satan, um, because you know we're alliterating sin, society, and Satan. Uh, and so I wanted to look at uh, a theology of the devil. <laughs> so this class is about, you know, everything you ever wanted to know about the devil, but we're afraid to ask. Uh, very important. And here is one of the, um, I guess, one of the one of the reasons or the basis upon which such an undertaking of a study should be done. Right. You look at what Paul says here at the bottom of verse um, let's see here, Second Corinthians 2. Just for background, uh, there has been a, a, a member of this church who was causing Paul trouble. They ended up uh, uh, disciplining him, and um, the church was now reluctant to go through with the restoration process. And so Paul made it very clear, if you look at verse 10, but one whom you forgive anything, I also forgive, for indeed what I have forgiven if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that uh, no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. Uh, several things in the Bible that says you shall not be ignorant of. One of those is Satan's schemes. Uh, the other one that comes to mind would be like the end times. The Bible says do not be ignorant of eschatology uh, but also here do not be ignorant of satan's schemes i mean that's really really important and wouldn't you agree that there is so much confusion today on the proper theology of the devil um, there is so much confusion as to the power and extent and as to the influence that the devil has both on both sides i would say this is on both sides of the spectrum whether you are a radical, flaming, Pentecostal, tongue-speaking, prophesying, you know, uh, vision-having, dreaming, you know, Pentecostal, right? Or on the other other side, you're, you know, dead-cold cessationist. You know, whatever you are, I think we all have misconceptions coming in to 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 the devil's uh, influence, right? Uh, what What would some of those misconceptions be, some popular misconceptions about the devil? Okay, Doug? Everything's the devil's fault. <laughs> yeah, that's very true, you know. And, and, and what's wrong with that, Cato? What's wrong with saying everything's... It, I mean, aren't the negative things that happen in your life, isn't that the devil's fault? Okay. Okay. You believe in man's responsibility? Oh, okay. I know. What do you mean by that? Yeah. 
with what 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 you were talking about is their uh, their um, their conception of Satan is that he is the one that makes them fall into sin, like and, and actually, like, yeah, yeah. It's almost that idea that kind of goes around. Well, since we're spending a little time on that, let's turn to James chapter one. Um, thought maybe that'd be a good. That would be a good uh, place to to look at that that very issue, right? Um, really amazing passage of scripture here uh, in James one, beginning of verse twelve. It says, "Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial." We're going to be looking at this very idea coming into our sermon today too. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say that when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So there you kind of see the uh, the process there. That James uses and the language that he uses there is the language of uh, hunting uh, or even fishing. Uh, it was used in the ancient world, this whole concept of in, in being enticed and conceiving and all of these things. It just speaks of basically a fish on a lure. You know, once the fish gets attracted by the bait, there's and opens up its mouth to take the lure. And there's, there's kind of a point of no return. You know, that's kind of the way that sin is. Once it's been conceived, you're at the point of no return and you're just going to follow through with the act at that point, you know. But exactly what James's point is here is, number one, a little bit of a different focus, but God is not the, he is not the one who you can blame for your sin, right? So as much as we believe in the sovereignty of God, we know that God is not the direct agent through which sin comes, uh, he uses secondary causes in order to accomplish that purpose. Um, and sometimes God can use direct causes to do something, and sometimes God can use secondary causes to do something. That's what Westminster Confession says. I think that's right. Sometimes it is God himself who is judging, right? Uh, God himself is the one who, let's say, sh- strikes someone dead. But at other times, you know, like in Isaiah... Um, God uses uh, a secondary cause to accomplish his ends, like I think it's Isaiah chapter 10 with the nation of Assyria that he calls the rod of his anger. So he used an evil nation to accomplish his sovereign purpose of punishing Israel. So God can use primary or secondary causes however he chooses to do that. But when it comes to sin, God is never the direct agent through which sin comes so that somehow God is creating fresh evil in your heart. That is absolutely not uh, in keeping with uh, a biblical view of the sovereignty of God or a biblical Reformed theology or Calvinism or what have you, right? So here, the onus is this, is that we have to take full responsibility for our own sin because our hearts have been led away led astray, and God places the blame directly upon the individual. Do you have a question, Mike? Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's good to... I think it's good to... 
to lay blame on the devil for what he should be blamed for, right? <laughs> right? He he is who he is, right? He yeah, and so when we say Satan and uh practical theology, are we talking are we talking specifically about Satan all the time? Um no, right? So so some well, you know, when we're talking about practical theology and Satan, are we really, let's say in our life, right, are we talking about the devil himself all the time? So the question then becomes, does the devil himself tempt every single person in this room? <laughs> right? There you go, right? So we know that the devil is a limited, finite creature. He is a fallen angel. Now he is a demon. And he has limited powers and limited scope. So he cannot tempt every Christian at one time, <laughs> right? That would demand that he be uh, omnipresent, right? Somewhat omnipotent, you know, so you begin to deify the devil, which is the last thing that we want to do, right? So, but, but there is a sense in which we can use the term Satan or the devil in a general way to speak of the principalities and powers that are at work. I think that's what Paul is doing here in Second Corinthians chapter 2, right? Is when he says we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes, right? I, I, I think he means in a broad sense the whole range of demonic influence that can come about by allowing things to fester in our lives or not dealing uh, with things biblically in the church, the devil and, you know, whether it's Satan himself or not, you know, uh, uh, taking full advantage of the church, you know, things like that. Sure. Yeah, that's right. The spirit of the age. There's, there's, there's a lot of that that we can say. I mean, probably the operative verse for that would be in first John, right? First John kind of gives a sweeping statement about how we we can view this in general, right? And the extent of this, First uh, John chapter five verse nineteen, we know that we are from God, and that the whole world lies in the uh, in the power of the evil one. So listen to that, what that's saying there. You know, the whole world is under the influence of the devil if we're speaking in those terms. So if you look at Ephesians chapter uh, 6, uh, Ephesians chapter 6, let's go there because this is kind of more, this is more extensive and we'll look at this carefully when we get there in Ephesians. Remember, what we're doing in this class for however many weeks the Lord will allow us to do this is we're, we're looking at practical theology from the book of Ephesians. So we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4 through chapter 6. Um, and in chapter six, part of practical theology is spiritual warfare. So let's look. Verse 10, Ephesians six, verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. You see that? So it's almost like the devil is almost portrayed here as the schemer, almost like, like he is the one who is directing the spiritual forces of wickedness to do what they do, right? Almost like he is the embodiment of it all. He is the source, in a sense, of it all, right? It all goes back to him. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but, and here we go, listen to this now. So, exchange, you know, we're thinking of the devil, but then he specifies, right? Against rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, 
and against spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's just amazing. I mean, this is, I mean, I mean, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but what that's talking about there is just a whole host of evil, demonic activity that goes on when it says in the, what does it say there? In the heavenly places. What does that mean? Because it's almost like what, you know, you're thinking about the devil and spiritual demonic, but then it uses the word heaven. It's like, well, the last thing that belongs in heaven is Satan. So what does he mean heavenly places, right? The sky, the atmosphere, space. Is that what you're talking about? Astronauts are encountering encountering Satan and his demons up in space, (laughs) right? Spiritual places. The supernatural realm, the spiritual realm. Yeah, the realm of the unseen, but the Bible calls it the heavenly realms or the heavenly places, right? Amazing. Uh, so, I mean, think about what this says about our world. Uh, yes, sir. The prince of the power of the air. That's right. So there, uh, what's talking about in Ephesians chapter two is that, uh, he is, he is the prince, uh, over the demonic hosts. And the air is talking about literally the influence that is the spiritual influence that lays over humankind um, because then it's compared to the course of this world, right? He does have a dominion. He does have dominion over the sphere that God has allotted to him, right? Uh, the Satan is not free to do whatever he wants. God has marked out a sphere. He's like a... He's like a rabid dog on a, on a leash. You know what I mean? There's only so much and so far he can go. And we see that maybe in, the, let's say, on a personal level in whose life? Job, right? Because Satan wanted to take it upon himself to just eradicate Job, to, to, to just annihilate him, right? But God uh, made it very clear, you may touch his flesh, but you cannot take his life. So God gave him a boundary that he could not cross, right? Uh, there's only so much, you know, it's almost like uh, John Piper said once, you know, the the devil is a pawn in the hand of God. He does his bidding. I think that's right, you know. God is sovereign over what the devil does, which is remarkable to think about, you know what I mean? And one way you can allow that to trip you up and say, wow, you know, so what you're saying is that ultimately whatever the devil is allowed to do, God is allowing that and permitting that and ordaining that to happen. Yes, but in another sense, if you think of the opposite of that, if you think of, let's say, a more of a of a platonic worldview where there's like this dualism, right, where it's like good and evil are side by side fighting it out inf- infinitely, right, and we don't know who's going to win type of thing. I mean, Star Wars, you know, you've got the dark side and... The good side of the force, you know, uh, that is not the biblical worldview, you know. When it says God is sovereign, like A.W. Pink says, God is sovereign over all, or he is not sovereign at all, right? The very word sovereign means having total control of everything, right, and authority over everything. So, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I wanted to look uh, just quickly at uh, Luke chapter 4. Uh, just because I think there's maybe some principles that we can learn even from Jesus' temptation. Luke chapter 4. What a remarkable, what a remarkable study that is. Boy, tell you what. You want to learn, you know, how to do spiritual warfare with the devil. 
And by the way, I'm not, I'm hoping that as a result of this class, people are not walking out of this class having a conversation with the devil, all right? <laughs> okay. I rebuke you, devil, in the name of Jesus. Everybody's out there talking to the devil, you know? Um, no, I, what's the verse that says, you know, the Lord rebuke you, right? It's in Jude, right? Let, 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 uh, let, let the Lord rebuke the devil, you know? Uh, that's really where we talk about misconceptions. That's really where the Pentecostal type groups really get it wrong. You know, they think they have to have this conversation with the devil. You know, every day they're talking to the devil. What do they talk to God as much as they talk? Anyway, watch it. (laughs) Okay, so Luke chapter four, uh, beginning in verse one. Obviously, we see. I think we can learn many lessons from Jesus' interaction with Satan here. Um, What a remarkable thing! Uh, Look at verse one. I mean. You know, how does someone, I mean, this is what I love about the Bible is it gives us hard truth, right? It gives us hard truth. Uh, it, it's, it doesn't, doesn't give us what we want to hear. Uh, look, look at what it says here. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned um, from the Jordan and was led, led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. Um, and as a matter of fact, if you look at Matthew chapter four, verse one, um, it's even more explicit. Let me just turn there real quick. Uh, Matthew chapter four, verse one, the parallel passage is even more explicit. It says, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Wow. So what's going on here? Why is Jesus being led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil? That that kind of seems to kind of maybe contradict what uh, James says when it says that God doesn't tempt anybody. Here we have a verse saying explicitly, not only you know the Spirit you know uh, not doing this, but let me say, but it ap- apparently tempting somebody, but not just somebody, the Holy Son of God, <laughs> right? So what what are we to make of this that? Uh, the Spirit is leading Jesus into the Spirit to be tempted. Anybody understand what's going on here? What's that? Don't be shy. No wrong. Well, there are wrong answers, but. Uh huh. Mm hmm. Definitely. Yes. Right. So obviously the text did not say the spirit is tempting Jesus, right? It's not what it said, right? The spirit led Jesus to the wilderness to be tempted, not by the spirit, but by the devil. So obviously here is a classic case of the secondary cause that God uses, i.e. the devil, in order to bring about this testing and this temptation that the son of God is to undergo. Yes, sir. Amen. Exactly right. And I think just what clarify what what, what this what scriptures were saying too is that Jesus wasn't that Jesus himself wasn't tempted, but the goal was that he should try to be tempted by Satan. 
So it didn't, so it didn't something to be tempted, right? So that was the goal, the cause. Um, not that Jesus was actually tempted, but that that was going to be. Um, mm. that, not, not that, like you know, like big you know, like debate there, brother. Tempted from, <laughs> like, like he said, like Jesus, like uh, um, uh, t- the, the tempting. Like there was a there was a, a trial, right, to, mm-hmm. to to go down in the wilderness. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it was going down in the wilderness. <laughs> right? There was this divine appointment, which I believe was the, was the beginning of um, Jesus coming and crushing Satan's head, a fulfillment of, of Genesis 3.15. Oh, yeah. That you see the beginning of that happen right at the inauguration of his ministry. And then it, the completion of that should happen at the cross. Um, but, but that's, you know, that's kind of what you see as Jesus being a type of Adam. So here's the question that we need to ask. Is being tempted by sin, sin? Mm-hmm. I think that's a big, that's a big distinction. Here. Sure. Because what James is saying is, uh, it grows when it's, there's lust in your heart. And right. It's conceived. Yeah. It's not. Yeah. It, it's not conceived. By the time he talks about lust, right, James, what he's saying is that he's already gone beyond the temptation process or the presentation of temptation to the sin process. This is how sin is ultimately conceived, right, and gives birth to death, right? right? So, um, but, yeah. I think also it's a good example that Satan was obviously not alone. Mm-hmm. He would have known the outcome. He would have known to try to tempt. Of course. Yeah, Satan didn't have Matthew chapter 1. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and so, definitely, um, as G. I just don't know that I'm comfortable with the language that Jesus was not tempted because it says he was tempted. Um, I'm I'm not comfortable with the language that says that, of course, that it's sinful for Jesus to be tempted. Uh, he can be tempted without having, as he says, anything within him that, or how does he say when he speaks of Satan, he has nothing in me, right? So there's no appeal, even though... But, but it's a real temptation. That's all I'm saying. Would it Sir? be biblical to say that suffering at a certain level is good for us? Well, yeah, of course. Yeah, Hebrews chapter 12. I mean, we're, we're trained. Even, even Jesus was trained through suffering. That's what it says, right? What's, where's that at? That's in the book of Hebrews. Of suffering. Well, of course, yeah, he, I mean, the, the temptation is amazing because Jesus is undergoing so many different things, you know what I mean? He's fasting, and and a lot of what's going on here really is a biblical theology going all the way back to Adam, right? I mean, I don't know if you detected that already, but that is what's happening here is Jesus is fulfilling his, his Adamic antitype, right? He is fulfilling the Adamic role as the second Adam, who, like Adam, was tempted uh, and Adam and Eve were tempted by the devil, but he succeeded where they failed. So uh, this is also a big part of it. So I got several hands. I think you were first, brother. Um, See what studying the devil does? It gets everybody involved. <laughs> Man, we should study the devil every Sunday. No. <laughs> yep. That's right. 
yet without sin. That's right. It's a great verse. Absolutely right. Yeah. He was tempted even as we are to every respect and every way. Uh, that includes psychologically, emotionally. Remember, guys, you know, because this is what happens with, with the temptation controversy, and theologians have wrestled with this so much. But when you go too far over on one side in the attempt to try to preserve Jesus' deity, because he is God and holy, right, and he obviously is without sin, right, you, you need to be careful not to do violence to his humanity, because as a man, don't think that Jesus was somehow, that, that his human experience was different than ours. It wasn't. That's the point, is that he's be, as fully man he was, and I think that's probably the, that's probably the, the prime text right there in, in Hebrews 4. He was tempted in all ways just as we are, yet without sin. So he was presented with a temptation, but never once and not for a second did Jesus' own heart lead him astray in that temptation. And that's, that's what we yeah. mean. Okay, that's, that's what, what you guys mean. That is what we're saying. You guys are on one team? Because, yeah. Okay. We're talking about this. We're not saying that. We're not saying that. I'm of Landon. I'm of, who's of Landon? <laughs> yes, ma'am. Sister? can but it but this obviously was not you know obviously just like us i mean somebody can tempt us externally it has nothing to do with our heart somebody can come to us and say hey man you want to go rob a bank well i don't know about you guys but that doesn't have any appeal to me right now this moment somebody came in here and said that i'd be like uh i think we can i think we can I think we can experience to some degree what Jesus experienced by resisting temptation and understand what it means that when we're tempted to go rob a bank and there is nothing in our heart strings that is le- leading us astray at that moment, we are not sinning because we're being tempted by somebody or something. So in the same way, Jesus is being bombarded with temptation by Satan with some pretty poignant points of temptation, right, as we're going to go see. I mean, what what he tempted him with is pretty substantial. Um, he is fasting. The devil is uh, tempting him to to um, to violate Philippians chapter two, where it says he laid aside the independent use of his attributes in order to become a, like a slave to come in the form of a servant, right? And 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 uh, and he's saying, make bread for yourself. End. The fast, right? I mean, think of the pressure there, right? Um, that, that, that could come about because you're in a state, Jesus is weak. He's hungry, it says. He's fully. So if we have this idea of, well, Jesus is fasting, but because he's the son of God, it really doesn't affect him. You know what I mean? No, that, that would be to do violence to his humanity. You know what I mean? Jesus experienced hunger just like Jesus experienced pain and anguish, and everything else that we experience, yet without sin, right? That's, 
It's almost like we get to a point where we have to leave it. We have to leave it there, right? Somewhere. Right. Yes, sir, Marshall. Well, I think the devil very perceptively was tempting him with the things he thought in his demonic reason that he would want to give into. That's right. That's right. He used the word of God, yeah. He was able to overcome the temptation. Yeah. I hear it. Well, he definitely was trying to entice him. Jesus, in, his, in and of himself, was not enticed in the sense that he didn't give in to, the, he didn't give in to it. You know, that we know. Yeah. Yeah. Takes over yeah. after a point. Yeah. Yeah, it's difficult. You know, it's a it's a tough it's a tough uh, conundrum. But one thing, thank, thankfully, Scripture gives us these. I think these barriers that you know where we these lines that we can't cross. You know, however, we understand the humanity of Christ and the temptation and how real it was and it was real yet without sin so how whatever whatever he went through psychologically spiritually emotionally we know that he did not sin ever he fulfilled all righteousness right so we know that whatever the temptation actually was like experientially we know that he did not uh, give into sin in the slightest because as Jesus himself will go on to say Satan has nothing in me and uh, I forget where that's at. It's in John somewhere. But uh, most commentators would just say, like, you know, that he has no uh, that, that that he has no occasion to 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 be lured away by the devil. There's nothing that entices Jesus. Nothing appealing in Christ to Satan, right? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Sure, sure. And I think I think it's I think it's safe to say that God ordains all things whatsoever comes to pass. Westminster Confession of Faith, right? And that would include our temptation. So, but again, that does not mean that Jesus or that God is the direct agent through which our temptation comes. We have to be very careful to make that distinction. And it's almost like we have to leave it there. Yes, of course. Um, you know, it's amazing how Calvinists become Arminian so quick, right? <laughs> when it comes to this point, we don't want God to be sovereign over our temptation. No, sorry, it doesn't work that way. You know what I mean? Um, you know, God is sovereign even in that, you know? 
but we know that within the ordaining, it's just like evil. We know that God ordains evil because whatever comes to pass, God ordains. That includes evil. So God ordains evil. There's no way out of talking about theodicy, right? What is theodicy? Theodicy is the problem of evil in relationship to God, you know, and some on more, more of the Arminian persuasion or middle knowledge persuasion, they would almost like to come up with this philosophy of panentheism, which says that there's almost like a sphere into which God ordains. He ordains this sphere that God himself cannot enter into where he ordains an area where even he doesn't know, doesn't ordain, he doesn't, he's not present, he doesn't interact, you know, that's idolatry. You know what I mean? God is sovereign over all things, you know? I mean, what did, what did God tell Moses, right? I think it's in, where, where's that at? In Exodus, you know, it says, Moses, you know, who has made the deaf and the blind and the dumb? Have I, I not the Lord God done all these things? Yeah, I quote this to college students at UNT, and much to their chagrin, you know, they stand there baffled that a Christian would actually not try to get God off the hook, as so many Christians do. Oh, God didn't know that was going to happen. Oh, God doesn't want that to happen, right? Well, yeah, God, he might allow it, but that's it. He doesn't, he allows it, but we don't know why he allows it. <laughs> you know, it's almost, we try every way to get God off the hook when God himself is telling us, no, I, I, what is he saying? Uh, I think Isaiah 5, he, he creates the darkness. 45, 7. Will you read it? I mean, I woke up this morning and I looked at uh, New Zealand, 7.8 earthquake with a tsunami on the way. Is God, does God play any role in that? You ask the average person on the street who believes in moralism, has their own philosophy of these things, they say, God has nothing to do with that. We don't know. God, God didn't know that was going to happen. God doesn't allow these things. You know, this is, this is not God. I mean, I preached a funeral for my own cousin, and she was viciously martyred for her faith. And uh, at, the, at the funeral, I had a relative that came up to me and who knew that I was a Christian and came up to me furious and, you know, pointing his finger at me and saying, Does God do this? This is God? God has nothing to do with this. And I said, no, yes, he does. He ordained it for his glory, and my cousin's in heaven because of it. No, and he said, no, absolutely not. God has nothing to do with it. He stormed off. nothing in me good exactly that's right there's nothing when he says that the devil has no claim on me what translation is that by the way (laughs) i'm wondering because i don't think i've ever heard it that way but that's a good translation if that's a translation that's interesting maybe that's niv wonder what the niv says there what verse is that 1430 what does anybody have an niv come on you smartphone people (laughs) but do you you got NIV in your hand? John fourteen thirty. What does the NIV say? Sometimes the NIV is a helpful interpretation to. Okay, so I will not. Oh, the ESV. Okay. 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 Ok
has no hold on me. Uh, see this language. It's interesting how Jesus uh, uses this this rhetoric, huh? It's just there's nothing. He knows that the, the devil cannot claim anything in Jesus, unlike us, right? Because we are sinners. The devil can accuse us, and many of his accusations are valid. Look at what he did the other day. And you think the devil's dumb? The devil is the most brilliant theologian probably that ever walked the face of the earth. And simultaneously, he's the biggest heretic. He knows the word inside and out. He can twist. How do you think all of these, uh, how do you think all these heresies get born? They come, they're originated according to 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Heresy is part of the devil's work. It's a false spirit. And that is something that originates from him. I mean, what do you think Islam comes from? From the bowels of, you know, the prince of the power of the air, from Beelzebub, the prince of demons. That's where it all comes from, you know. Yes, sir. Yeah, Second Corinthians chapter 11, I think that is, yeah. Yeah, different Jesus, yeah. People have different Jesuses, you know what I mean? Gotta have the right one, you know. Where, where are we at? Because now I'm just all caught up. I don't even know where I'm at. Oh, Luke chapter 4. Oh, yeah. That's right, the temptation, right? I'm just saying, you know, if we get, of course, you know, we have to deal with the theological conundrum of the temptation of Jesus. What is that temptation really like? What was that really like? Was it a real temptation? Is it just say he was tempted, but was it not really tempted? Well, we know this. He was without sin. So to whatever degree he was actually tempted, he didn't, he never, he never slid into sin. Right. But if we notice from here just how we are going on a practical level, how are we going to overcome? Well, remember, every time you and I are tempted, we are imbibing heresy. Right. That thing. That object, that desire. Will make you happy. Is that true? It's heresy. Right. It's. Does the devil ever speak in total, absolute falsehood, nothing but falsehood? No, no, no. no. He's so smart, right? He uses a little bit of truth to get in there, right? Like uh, Jehovah Witnesses. Remember I told you a story? I just became a Christian, and I was so proud to be a Christian. I was learning and studying. and I was going to Calvary Chapel, and, you know, Chuck Smith was my pastor, and I was just so proud of that, you know? And I get a knock at the door Saturday morning. I forgot when it was. I was probably 19, 20 years old. Guy opened the door. Guy's dressed better than me. And he's standing there going, hey, you know, um, yeah, we want to study the scriptures with you. And, oh, great. What's, what's this all about? You know, oh, it's okay. Jehovah Witness. I said, oh, no, 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 no. I'm a Christian. And he says, so am I. And I said, no, no, no. I told him, you know, in my young, my young youthful zeal, I said, no, no, no. My pastor is Chuck Smith. And he says to me, Chuck Smith was my pastor for 30 years. And I just went, <laughs> the walls were caving in on me, right? But but Jehovah Witnesses, they tell you they're going to study the scriptures. They want to open up the King James Bible. They're going to look at the text. That guy was quoting Greek words to me. You see what I'm saying? They don't just come in and say, you know, can I damn you to hell today? You know what I mean? That's that's not the approach, Right. So the same thing, what, they might, what? Uh, they don't knock on the door and say, Jesus is in God. 
Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? Yeah. So in the same way, I mean, Satan didn't come to Jesus, you know, and just, you know, tell him, hey, abort the mission. Right. He tried to get him to do it in such a way where he, you know, would do it himself in a sense. Right. End your hunger. Just end your hunger. Right. You're the son of God. Think about it. you are the son of God. Is that true or false? He's just right. He, he identified Jesus as the son of God and he's basically tempting him. End your hunger. Turn these stones into bread. What's wrong with that? You're the son of God. Right. And then Jesus says, you know, of course, um, he says to him, man should not live by live on bread alone. Right. But by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Right. Question over here. So it's okay. you forgot. OK, let's keep going. No, no, I'm joking. Did you have a question? Yeah. Yeah, in whom I'm well pleased. Yeah, amen. Yeah, and then what else did he tempt him with? Verse 5, and he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give all of this domain and its glory for, I will give you it, for it has been handed over to me and I uh, give it to whoever I wish. Uh, therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And so what's interesting there is that, of course, as the son of God, as the son of David, right, Jesus was entitled to a kingdom. And here is Satan saying, just short circuit your plan. My plan is better. I will give you all the kings, not just one you know, kingdom. It's not just Israel, right? I will give you all the kingdoms of the world and all of their glory put together. Right. So here he is laying it on thick. Right. He's saying all you have to do is worship before me. And then, of course, the last one is in verse eight and says, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him to Jerusalem and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. Boy, the lessons we can learn there. He left him for an opportune time, right? But look at that last one. That last one is is telling Jesus, Throw yourself off of the pinnacle of the temple, right? Because the devil or, or the angels will take care of you, you know? Uh, obviously, Jesus knows his end is to end in suffering and death on the cross. This would be the easiest way for him to short circuit the pain of Gethsemane and ultimately of the cross. And of course, Jesus is unwilling to do that. Um, boy, really amazing. And then when it says the devil had finished every temptation. He left him until an opportune time. Just that idea, just knowing our adversary, right? Let's 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 correlate that with First Peter chapter five, ending there with First Peter chapter five, and this is why I mean, this is why we have to, in a sense, be very vigilant 
You know, even in our Christian walk, we can't, you know, Christianity, I mean, so much of Christian. wouldn't you guys agree? I mean, you guys tell me, but so much Christianity is done in the name of fun. Fun. Uh, I just saw a church. What, what was this church? Uh, somebody sent me. Oh, no, I better not talk about that. Somebody sent some pastor tried to invite me to something. Anyway, I looked and I, I checked it out and it was all like Disneyland Christianity. You know what I mean? In short, I just told me, no, no, thanks. But anyway, you know, it's just it's just like everything is fun, fun, fun. Look at all the fun your kids can have. And, you know, I went to a church in South Lake. They had a full arcade in the church. Full, I'm talking full scale arcade. Don't sit here and say, well, that's kind of cool. Don't, don't even. We're not doing an arcade no matter what, okay? But you know what I'm saying? It's like, and then I, I was there to visit a friend. But anyway, I was walking down the hall. <laughs> what are you doing there, right? That shows you how gracious I am. I was visiting a friend, man, and I walked in that church for him. And I walked down the hall. I looked to the right, and the youth group, uh, they were all in front. They're doing like a concert, like a mock concert. And I couldn't believe my eyes, and I couldn't believe my ears. But the youth leader was jumping up and down and telling the kids how to jump, like for the praise worship. Like, jump like this, you know, like this, you know. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like, what is this, you know? Is this church or is this like a concert, like a rock concert, you know? Oh, man, I just think. <sighs> and then we have a verse like this. That kind of smacks us all in the face, right? First Peter five eight. Be sober in spirit. Be on alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. So, I mean, yes, ma'am. I'm out of time. I didn't even get to anything, huh? Yeah, Genesis 4. Yeah. Cain. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. He didn't. Yeah. We're being hunted. Basically, this what this scripture just told us is we're being hunted. And if you correlate this with what happens in Luke... Uh, in Luke 22, where Satan asks Jesus to devour Peter, right? I mean, think about that. Think about how incredible that is. In the spiritual realm, Satan is asking for permission to devour certain Christians, to sift them like wheat, to eradicate them. That's incredible. And Jesus says, but I have prayed for you, right? Uh, and when you return, strengthen your brothers. That, what, what, no, what Jesus says, I have prayed for you that what? That your faith will not fail, right? But when you return, strengthen your brethren, right? So Jesus knew, what an amazing verse, right? Jesus knew the apostasy of Peter, right, uh, w- would happen, but he also prayed that his faith would be strengthened. Uh, matter of fact, let me read this for young Christians in here. At every stage of our walk with God, Satan will seek to stop up our path and fill us with fears, a hymn that we sing. From the moment of conversion, we must be on alert. And now I want to quote to you um, a Puritan work by Willem Tillink, The Path of True Godliness. Listen to this. He says, No sooner has the Christian made up his mind to serve the Lord God with all his heart than the kingdom of darkness is stirred up to resist him like a brutal jailer who immediately acts to stop his prisoners from escaping as soon as he discovers their plans. 
To whatever degree a person truly succeeds in freeing himself from the bondage of sin, to the same degree this kingdom of darkness will oppose the struggle most fiercely and mobilize all of its forces against the person. That's incredible. Martin Luther thought himself directly tempted by the devil as he was seeking to translate the Bible into German. He believes he was directly tempted by Satan. Uh, maybe he was. I mean, we're talking about the Reformation here. Maybe maybe Satan himself was active in the Reformation. You know what I mean? You think about the darkness that laid over all of humanity at that point. You know, anyway, interesting stuff. Is it an obstacle to practical theology? You better believe it. But can we overcome it by, by the power and the strength that Christ supplies? Yes. Amen. So next week, Lord willing, what I want to do is I want to outline the book of Ephesians and talk about what is practical theology built upon, right, before we actually get into the nuts and bolts. So, all right, let's go. We're, we're ready to go.